Uh, my text this morning will be Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Amen. This will give uh, our media team, give Gabriella and Malachi uh, a heads up about the text this morning. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Forgive me, uh, Gabby, Malachi, got to send that text earlier. Uh, NIV. NIV. And so um, I'm pretty excited about this series. I'm also excited about the 40 days of prayer. How many of y'all engaging in that? Amen. Has that been a blessing to you? Amen. I pray that it has. Um, an exciting thing that's happened uh, with that is, that's right. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. I was on the other end. So, um, glad to be in worship with my oldest son, Isaiah, this morning. Amen. Come on to help out and be with us. Thank God for your brother. And uh, so, this 40 days of prayer that we've been on for the past couple of days, I've been pretty excited. The thing that really has blessed me, y'all, is uh, there are people who are not even a part of Mission House that have been participating in this. And just we had a young lady that came to Fire Nights last night. Uh, she just expressed her gratitude for us as a church doing this and opening this up to the entire community uh, that pays attention to what we do. And just how it's been rekindling things in our own heart uh, around spiritual discipline and just being more intentional and being more attentive uh, to God's presence during the day. And so we just uh, are, are grateful uh, that we can be a community that, be that believes strongly in collaboration, that believes strongly in the community, the communal aspect of our faith. And so uh, we're just grateful that we can be that. And, you know, one of the things that we, one of the reasons why we began the 40 Days of Prayer is to remind people uh, that Christian faith really is a team sport. Amen. It is a community deal. It's not just about you and Jesus, not just about Jesus being your personal Lord and Savior, although he, God is, Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior, but one of the things about our faith that's unique is that it is a communal faith, right? That's why, you know, the Bible always refers to uh, whenever we see people addressing God's people, it's always in the collective. It's always a community. When Paul writes his letters, he's writing to a community, to the Ephesians, uh, he's writing to the Colossians, the Philippians, right? In the Old Testament, when God is speaking to the holy prophets, he's speaking to Israel, amen? He's speaking to God's people. And so our faith is a communal faith, amen? I know in American society, we're very individualistic in our society, uh, but a lot of times what that does is it creates very self-centered and selfish people. And when we just focus on ourselves, and so we don't know in, in, increasingly in our society we're learning less in how to be together as a community because we're shaped and formed in the culture in which we live to be silos. So we don't even know how to be in solidarity with each other. We don't even know how to support each other when it's necessary. And so we're on the roles of the church. We're on the prophetic functions of the church in America today is to be an example of what it looks like to be a group of people on a mission in solidarity with other people, especially people that are suffering, especially people who are ostracized and exploited and excluded in our culture. And so what the world needs now is a community of people who know how to support each other and how to, and, and how to engage in solidarity with each other. And so one of the ways that we're starting off this year is that we're going to pray together. Amen. 40 days of prayer. So our text this morning to start off this drawn in uh, uh, series is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. I actually, actually like the word, I like to say blessed. Amen. I don't know what it is. It sounds more sacred and holy when you say it in like two syllables. So blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because of me. Amen. Qualify that. Uh, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Our key verse this morning is this from verse 4 when it says, Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. There's this short story that I want to share with you about a child who attended Sunday school. Teacher had repeatedly requested that he remain seated. In in exasperation, she at last demanded, now be still and stop being so defiant. The little boy countered back, okay, I'll do what you say, but on the inside, I'm still defiant. (laughs) Don't y'all teachers, educators who wish you had kids that decide that, right? I'll sit there, but I'll be defiant on the inside. Just keep it on the inside, amen, inside voice, right? Isn't that what y'all say? Amen. On the inside, I'm still defiant. We begin this series drawn in to talk about the equality, the, 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 the sameness between emotional health and spiritual health. A lot of times in religious situations, in church situations, we make a distinction between what's called emotional health, emotional maturity, and on the other side, we talk about spiritual maturity or spiritual health. That's how, you know, and, the reason, and one of the ways that we see this is Y'all know folk, they know the Bible inside and out, but emotionally they a devil. Mm, y'all ain't quiet, y'all quiet this morning. Spiritually, they may do all the religious activity, all the religious requirements that's required of them. I've been in situations like this myself. I've been here where I go to church on Sunday. I pay my tithes and offerings. I do all the religious stuff I'm supposed to do. Every now and then, I may read my Bible, but emotionally, I may be immature. Or emotionally, I may be dealing with some things that are beyond my control that I have not yet named yet. And so what we're doing in this series is exploring uh, what it means to be emotionally healthy and spiritually, right? That there is no separation between the two. To be emotionally healthy is to be spiritually healthy. Amen? And so me and uh, Brother G, Brother George, Minister George, we're going to be traveling down this path together with all of y'all, and we're going to be sharing uh, in this, this, this series together. Um, but as we jump into this, I started out uh, this series talking about emotional health, spiritual health, with a beatitude. Amen. From Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. <clears throat> I'm praying for your patience this morning because we have a, 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 a short path to go down, but a lot of ground to cover. See, the Beatitudes are a manifesto of the kingdom of God. Say manifesto. Or what I call God's other world. Amen. It's a word that I'm adopting because the kingdom of God is God's other world. It is the world that God desires, God intends. And also when God backs it up with power, God backs it up with grace for it that manifests itself. 
Amen. Hence, the, a manifesto is a declaration of what you want to see manifest in the world. Mm. And so the manifesto is a written statement declaring publicly the intentions, the motives, or the views of its issuer. It is a declaration of what will be manifested by the declarer. You've heard of manifestos before. The most famous one is who? I want to hear what's, in, what's the most famous manifesto? It's actually in the word. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Huh? Either way. Yeah, it's got the word manifesto in it. Any historians here? The blank, blank manifesto? God, come on, God. Like, come on, God. Historian. Okay. The most famous one is by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels called the Communist Manifesto. Anybody heard of Communist Manifesto? Anybody ever called Marx? Amen. Yes. See, their manifesto summarizes Marx and Engels' theories concerning the nature of society and politics. I'm going to get a little deep before we get into the scriptures. Uh, namely, that in their own words, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. It is also it briefly features their ideas for how the capitalist society of the time would eventually be replaced by socialism. In the last paragraph of the manifesto, the authors call for a forcible overthrow of all the existing social conditions which served as a call for communist revolutions around the world. They wrote that in the mid-1800s, spread throughout Europe, and it led to a whole bunch of revolutions throughout the world going into the 20th century. The power of a manifesto. Then there's the manifesto of the Black Panther Party. Y'all heard of Black Panthers. Okay, make sure y'all heard of Black Panthers, amen. A, a revolutionary political organization founded by Bobby Seale and Huey Newton in October 1966 in Oakland, California. Don't worry, I know you probably never heard of the Black Panthers being preached in church before, but we're in Mission House, we're going to do that this morning, amen. So the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense had a 10-point platform, which was their manifesto. I'm going to read a little bit of their 10-point plan. Y'all ever read the 10-point plan? of the Black Panther Party. We want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. We want full employment for our people. We want an end to the robbery by white people of our black community. We want decent housing fit for shelter of human beings. We want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. We want all black people to be exempt from military service. We want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. We want freedom for all black people held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. We want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in the court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. Have you ever heard that before? Man, that's still relevant. That's a manifesto. At Mission House, we have a manifesto. Does some of y'all know that? It's actually on all the doors. There's a door here, and there's a door there when you walk out. It has a copy of our manifesto. If you get a chance, if you've never noticed it before, uh, please read it. I'll read it here real quick. It's very simple. We believe that God is mobilizing an army of love for the good of our neighborhoods and cities, East Spencer, Salisbury, and the greater Rowan County area in North Carolina. This is more than having church more than having a common belief system, this is a Jesus movement of the kingdom of God, alerting and inviting everyone to be mobilized for the good of their neighborhoods and cities. We ain't trying to just draw a large crowd here. We are here to do kingdom damage to the devil's kingdom. Hmm. 
Jesus only had 12 and 70. Amen. And so, and so we are an army of love. Love lifts us into the worship of God, becoming our truest selves in Jesus Christ. Love connects us together as a spiritual family on mission. Love sends us into our community as kingdom agents, co-laboring with God, engaging in healing justice, peacemaking, and culture-making. That is our manifesto. If you've not heard that before, people say, well, what Mission House is about? You can just tell them, well, we got a manifesto. Turn your name and say, we got a manifesto. <laughs> then there's the manifesto declared by Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it goes on even into our main text. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is Jesus' manifesto. Amen. According to the New Testament scholar, Warren Carter, see, you got to understand what Jesus is about here. And so I know we just jumped right into Matthew chapter 5, but you got to understand what's happening here in this gospel of Matthew. A lot of times as Christians, we have to understand what Jesus is up to in the world. Amen. You can go to church your whole life. You can go to church and just do all this religious stuff and not even be a participant and an active agent in the kingdom of God because we have some weird ideas about what the kingdom of God is. We think the kingdom of God is something that we build, that we, that we create. No, 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 no. I hear it in church circles a lot. We talked about this a lot in Mission House. Jesus never told us to build the kingdom of God. Jesus never told us to even advance the kingdom of God. Jesus said what? Pray that it comes. Paul talks about inheriting it. Jesus talks about seeing it and entering into it. So the kingdom of God is a reality that you participate in. What is the kingdom of God? I say it's the other world. It's the world that God is bringing into the midst of this old world. The Bible calls it new creation. Uh, Jesus called it the kingdom of God. He says uh, in Mark chapter 1, he talks about uh, when he begins to preach, Jesus began to preach, and all throughout Galilee preaching that the time is fulfilled, repent and believe this good news. The good news being what? That the kingdom of God is at hand. He says it right there in the text. And what does he mean by kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is simply this, y'all, the way the world should be. The way the world, God intended the world to be, that is what the kingdom of God is. Mm. If you don't believe me, consult the prophets. The word, the word kingdom there is the Greek word basileo, which literally means where one treads one's feet, where everyone walks. Wherever God walks is God's kingdom. That's why it don't make sense for preachers specifically to tell people they were called to build something that God already has. That's why it's called the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of men or the kingdom of humans. That's like me telling y'all, all right, y'all, we sitting up in this building, right? Y'all see the roof? See the walls? It'd be crazy for me to tell y'all, let's go build this building today. Would it not? That's how we sound in church when we say we're building the kingdom. The kingdom is not yours to build. The kingdom is yours to participate in, to see it, to enter, to inherit, to pray that it shows up and manifests itself in the world. And so Jesus, in the Gospels up to this point, he's been preaching the coming of the kingdom of God. And how does the kingdom show up in Jesus' ministry? You see it all throughout the Gospels. We miss it. When Jesus exercises demons, when Jesus heals people, when Jesus speaks a powerful teaching, when Jesus challenges religious and political authority, when Jesus uh, shares food and performs miracles to, to bring abundance to people who are starving and hungry. These are moments when the kingdom of God shows up. Not the expansion of my nonprofit. The kingdom of God shows up when Jesus shows up. That's when that great African theologian origin said, he said, Jesus is the autobasilia in the Greek. Autobasilia in the Greek. Jesus is the kingdom of God. So if you ever confused about what the kingdom of God is, it is Jesus. 
I know, right? It's that simple. We come up with these paragraphs and long books about it. People say, Pastor, what's the kingdom of God? It's what Jesus is doing. Well, Pastor, what Jesus is doing? Read the Gospels. It's that simple. When you see Jesus doing stuff, that's the kingdom showing up. So when Jesus says here, he says, blessed. This is his manifesto. And so Jesus is preaching this in a society. And the reason why I have to set this up for y'all, can you imagine me telling you about, because we're about to celebrate his birthday, can you imagine me telling you about Dr. King and his I Have a Dream speech? If I read that speech to you but didn't explain to you what was happening around him, Right? If I explained to you a speech that he gave and there was no, and I didn't explain what Jim Crow was, if I didn't explain what racism was, if I didn't explain what war economy was, if I didn't explain all the different ways in which black people, brown folk were being discriminated against, and, then I, and if I didn't explain any of that, and I just plopped the speech down into you and say, you understand what this speech is. You can't understand the speech if you don't understand the context and the social situation in which you was in. That's how we treat Jesus sometimes. You, don't under, you can't understand the power of Jesus' message if you don't understand that Jesus was preaching to an occupied people, a people that were occupied by the Roman Empire. We do Jesus like that. We take Jesus' words out of context. We don't understand the history. So it doesn't make sense. Jesus is giving his manifesto in a, in a very powerful and sinful and oppressive context. According to New Testament scholar Warren Carter, imperialism provides the context for interpreting the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's audience suffered under the conditions of imperial Rome, a world marked by vast social societal inequalities, economic exploitation, and political oppression. Tensions between the rich and the poor, pervasiveness. You see this in Twitter, right? Soon as that joker killed that dude over in Iraq, a whole bunch of poor working class folks said, I ain't going to fight over there. Y'all see it? Y'all see it on Twitter? You see this, right? Because historically what has happened in this culture, rich people decide to go to war and they send poor people to go fight their battles. Don't get mad at me. They tell y'all, they tell y'all it's about freedom and the spread of democracy. But we know better than that now. Right, Pastor. I know somebody's saying don't get too political today, Pastor. But it's all today, today you're gonna find out that it's all connected. Tensions between the rich and the poor. This is very like our time, very much like our times as it was in Jesus' time. Uh, there's pervasive displays of Roman power and control. Pontius Pilate is the governor over Jerusalem, over Israel. Uh, the, 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 the king, uh, Herod, and, and, and the high priest, Caiaphas, they are essentially uh, puppets. They are people that is put in place to be puppets for Pontius and the, 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 the authority that's above Pontius Pilate, which is the Roman Caesar, which is the, the emperor of Rome. Pervasive displays of Roman power and control, including military presence. No separation of religious institutions and personnel from social, economic, and political commitments. Imperial theology or propaganda. An obvious sign, sounds, and smells of the destructive impact of the imperial social political order structured for the elite's benefit. I know I got a little deep right there. Poverty, poor, sanitation, disease, malnutrition, overwork, and social instability. Sound familiar? Let me put it in terms that the gospel talks about it. When the religious leaders and the political leaders got together, when they saw Jesus coming with the kingdom of God, they felt threatened. Matter of fact, the high priest Caiaphas said this, yo, if we let this dude continue to preach and do what he's doing, he's going to bring the full might of the Roman Empire upon us. So we got to kill him. That's your Jesus. Amen. Meek and mouth. Does this sound familiar? Elites benefit poverty, poor sanitation, 
disease, malnutrition, overwork, and social instability. Dr. King said it this way, and since we're going to be celebrating him, and quite frankly, I'm just going to say it right here. Y'all going to be told a bunch of half-truths about this man in the next couple weeks. King said stuff like this. You know where riots are? Riots are the language of the unheard. Your king said that. Dr. King said that. Amen. Amen. So people, within this context, a reference to those who mourn takes on a social tone bigger than what's happening to us as individuals. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, it's much deeper than just your own individual sadness. Although you are individually sad or angry or dealing with emotional pain, guess what? It's also connected to what is going on in the world around you. Another reading of the Beatitudes by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, theologian, anti-Nazi dissident, and who was hung by the Nazis because uh, he was planning a revolt against uh, Adolf Hitler. It was a Christian pastor planning a revolt against oppression. Mm-mm-mm. And key founding member of the Confessing Church. Anybody ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Mm. Ah, Got to learn it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's reading of this beatitude is very relevant. He says, by mourning, this is Dietrich here, by mourning Jesus, of course, means doing without what the world calls peace and prosperity. Let me read that again. By mourning, and by mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, like sadness and, and, you know, like I'm mourning the passing of someone. I'm mourning the loss of someone in my life. He says, by mourning, Jesus, of course, means doing without what the world calls peace and prosperity. He means refusing to be in tune with the world or to accommodate oneself to its standards. Such people mourn for the world, for its guilt, its fate, and its fortune. While the world keeps holiday, they stand aside. And while the world sings, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, they mourn. They see that for all the jollity on board, the ship is still sinking. See, those are, so those are blessed because they mourn. They mourn because they see the truth of the world. Hmm. They see the truth of the world. Here, mourning becomes a refusal, a standing aside directed toward a system of domination. It is, in other words, a political resistance. It is the despair that bears witness. And you know, some of y'all probably like in despair this week when you heard about the news in Iraq, amen? Or some of y'all were probably in despair this week or past week when you heard about the death of the young lady that was killed at Concord, Concord Mills Mall who was killed by a straight bullet in the parking lot of Concord Mills Mall, amen? You probably was in a little despair about these things. And so uh, what we're going to learn this morning, mourner is blessed because they are saddened by the truth of the situation. The world ain't right, and too many people are okay with that. Those are the ones who mourn, and they're blessed because they ain't drunk the Kool-Aid. See, you were told your pain is all your fault. You were told that your pain, the aching in your soul, is all your fault. You were told that all of your emotional pain starts on the inside of you. The silent tears and hidden corners. Sometimes you sit in emotional anguish and don't even know why. You balled up in a fetal position in a corner somewhere not knowing why. All you know is is that you have been told that it is your feelings, that those feelings are from you and solely from you. 
You're told genetics, brain chemistry, choices you've made. There's some truth to some of that. But we live in a world that we will have, that will have you believing that it is all you. Matter of fact, <clears throat> you are told that all of your melancholy, your mourning, your major depression, your sorrow, your despair, your grief, despondency, and general unhappiness falls on you. I know this is countercultural because we live in a culture that says, of the rugged individual, that says everything that befalls you is your fault. Everything. It's all on you. You just ain't rugged enough. You just ain't strong enough. When in reality, a lot of your pain is your soul rebelling against the world. Your melancholy and sadness is connected to the messed upness of what's around you. The deep anxiety and uncertainty of living in this world. Some of you are saddened now due to the possibility of our government going to war with Iran. Some of you are outright scared and filled with anxiety. As you should be. Because there's nothing beautiful and pretty and patriotic about the kind of war that this country might be going into. Deep down your soul knows this isn't right, so you mourn. You may not have real tears, but yet your soul is crying. One of the most dangerous things psychologists are telling us about our society now, we live in such a society so that people are suffering and don't even realize they're suffering. It's like the diabetic who doesn't realize they're diabetic. It's like the person who has a chronic illness and they don't even realize they have a chronic illness. One of the things that therapists and psychologists, especially those who pay attention to what's happening in society, one of the things that they're noticing is that not only are people uh, suffering and they don't know they're suffering, we are losing the ability to name the suffering. Can you imagine that, to live in a world where a people, where a community don't even have the language to even describe what's wrong with them? We're losing a shared language to describe what's wrong with the world. I know this ain't a, on the rappers kind of message. Ultimately, what I'm saying is that there is a reality to our pain. Not that God gives us this so that we can learn something. Not like that. Right? You know, God says, you know, a lot of times in church we say, God gave me this thing so I can, he can teach me a lesson. Right? And that's not how it works. The Bible says, Paul says, that all things work for the good. Right? He didn't say God causes all things. He says all things work for the good. What God does, God uses the bad that's happened for your good. God transforms. God remixes the suffering and pain in your life. God remixes it, repurposes it for you. Mm. But God will give us wisdom to understand the voice of our pain. To understand that as citizens of the kingdom of God, mourning the brokenness of the world can be a gift to a world in denial about its own brokenness. In denial through its indifference to the suffering of others. In denial about growing inequality which impacts people personally and socially in their well-being. The world needs our mourning. The world needs our tears. What we ultimately will realize is that these kinds of tears are the very tears of God. That's why Jesus says you mourn. You're blessed when you mourn. Why? 
Because when you are in the kingdom of God, when the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, when you begin to mourn because of what's happening around you, maybe even what's inside of you, but more importantly, what's happening to your neighbors, what's happening to strangers, what's happening uh, to your community, what's happening to your city. When you begin to mourn, you got to understand that when you mourn in situations like that, you are mourning with God. And if you shed tears, you are shedding tears with God. When you consider the state of the world and tears begin to fall, when you heard about, when I heard about the 13-year-old young lady, her last name is Probst, the girl that was killed recently at Concord Mills, those tears are also the tears of God. When I read the report this morning, they're sending thousands of troops from Fort Bragg and the level of anxiety and fear that was being described by all those people that live down in Fort Bragg down in North Carolina, that part of North Carolina, yo, the report was that people were afraid, they're scared, spouses and children, they were like worried, why is my mama, why is my daddy going to fight a war, why is it, why is it that there's a very real possibility they may not come home, that they may die because of the sociopathic behavior of a crazy man in the White House? Yeah, I said it. Is it a partisan issue anymore? It ain't a partisan issue anymore. It ain't a partisan issue anymore. I have to say this because where else we going to talk about this? Report came out last night. The Pentagon officials, the top Pentagon officials were stunned. I'm saying this out of my own sadness, y'all. I'm saying this out of my own grieving because I feel like we about to send young men and women in harm's way in the name of freedom. But really what it is, they're being sent on the orders of somebody who is sick. In the kingdom of God, Your tears are gifts to the world to let it know it ain't right. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I know I went deeply political this morning, but the main thing I want you to know and to realize is that what we call depression, and usually we give depression such a wide berth. It could be a number of wide-ranging things. So when I just say depression, I mean feelings of sadness, feelings of anger, uh, feelings of melancholy. Amen. Feelings, feelings, feelings of unhappiness, all these different things. Uh, what we're learning is, and when you study this in a very deep way, a lot of times what this, 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 this emotional pain is, this emotional discomfort is, it is your soul waging war against the world around it. It's like the last frontier of your being. It's like, yo, this is the last stand. Yo, we're going to cry out in pain. See, here's the thing about pain. Anybody play sports? Anybody ever play any, uh, do any kind of physical activity or around sports? Anybody ever broke their arm or leg or wrist or anything? Any broke, anybody broke anything in their body? It was painful. Right? It was painful. And why was it painful? Why do you have nerve endings in your body? To let you know that something broke. It's that simple, isn't it? See, depression or emotional pain is that part of our soul that lets us know not only is something messed up in our own lives, but also there's something messed up in the world around us. It's letting us know the world ain't right, y'all. I'm about to say something that may be a little controversial. Y'all read the report about Australia. They said this fire that's raging in Australia is apocalyptic. Y'all heard about this, right? It's literally like this in the naval fleets down there now. But scientists told us this was going to happen. It's called climate change. Right? 
the sea levels rising, weather patterns changing, the world getting slowly warmer and warmer. To the point now, a liberal estimate is saying if we don't change this in the last in the next 15, 20 years, it's going to be irreparable. That's what's happening in the world around us. The world is increasingly becoming uninhabitable for human beings. It may explain where we have increasing suicide rates. Because people in their soul know that the world just may be ending. Because here's the thing, there's certain pains that you cannot even know unconsciously. So there's certain things that are happening to us, happening on the inside of us, that are unconscious. We're not even conscious of those things. So a lot of times we're responding to things around us in the world around us, and we don't even realize we're doing that. Because we live in a society that tells us that the value of your life is based upon what you can afford. What do you do if you can't afford anything? Then you're not valuable? You're not productive? You're not a good citizen? Therefore, you're not a good human being? So what do you do? You call a couple of charges on some stuff? Your life is kind of messed up and you're figuring out what I'm going to do with my life? And you, some people, what they do is, if they're not around the right people, that's why people say, Pastor, this is very doom and gloom here. Give me some hope, Pastor. Give me some light. I got something for you, Jesus. But not only Jesus, a community that loves you. Because what people need now more than ever, people need God. They need Jesus. Yes, they need the presence of the Savior in their life. But they also need a community of people that will love them, that will be present with them, that will embrace them in their mess, that will embrace them in their challenges, that will hold on to them for dear life. People are dying out here. My youngest son told me, he said, Dad, people dying out here, Dad. People dying out here on the inside. They can't afford to live where they live. They're trying to figure out how they're going to make ends meet. They got two and three jobs just to survive. And some of them, some of them try to self-medicate that with drugs and alcohol and all kind of crazy stuff just to medicate their souls. And God said, Dad, Dad they dying out here. I said, son, I know. He said, Dad, what can we do? I said, and I told them because one of my children is really struggling right now emotionally. I said, man, you got to be connected with some folks that's going to love on you. What the world needs. They need a community of people that's willing to mourn with them. There's an old saying that says this. People will remember the tears they share together more than the happiness they share together. People will remember, will remember the tears they share together with other people, other brothers and sisters, than they will the happiness that they shared, the happy moments that they've shared together. Why? Because when you're mourning and when you're sad and you're angry and you're feeling with all kind of a pain in your heart, the one thing that you need around you is people that love you, that you can be vulnerable towards and speak and give voice to your pain and talk about what's really going on inside of you. Don't tell me that you suffer. Don't tell me you're thinking about to end your life and you're telling me you're blessed and highly favored. Don't lie to me. I'm your brother. I'll die for you. I give you my last for you. That's what people need right now. I got people in my life, and I thank God I got people in my life that they trust me enough to tell me, say, Pastor, I feel like ending my life because they know I ain't going to judge them. I said, well, let me just be with you. Let me just walk with you through this thing. That's my prayer for Mission House. That we don't become so, that we don't become this kind of religious, stuck-up, self-righteous community. That we can be real with each other. That we can give voice to our pain with each other so we can be with each other. Even in the storm of what's happening politically and economically in this world. Uh, what's going on around us. That we can be with each other in solidarity with each other. That's what the world needs. So... 
I thought I had some markers, y'all. Where's my markers? I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, the visual erase error. Not the one. That, that, that go on the whiteboard? Okay, yeah. Make sure it works. I'm going to check. The kingdom of God Y'all, I'm at a point now, you know, as we move into 2020, you know, I'm just in a place now where I appreciate Jesus more than ever. Not only because of the kind of death that he died, but also the kind of life that he lived. Right? The more that I dive deeper into my own work in this community, the more I dive deep into the root causes of poverty and racism and the people's personal struggles and all kind of challenges, the more that, I, more that I appreciate Jesus. And also this, one of the things I'm learning too, the closer you get to Jesus, the more dangerous it gets. <laughs> and by dangerous, I mean not like, you know, putting your life in danger kind of situation, but the thing about growing closer to Jesus, you begin to lose your illusions. Especially about what this faith is all about. So I'm in a place now, y'all, this is my confession. If this faith does not make an impact in the world around me, then what's the point of it? If all this faith is, this is to gather on Sunday and have a great time in the Lord and have a high time in Jesus. If that's all there is, I might as well spend the rest of my year in New Orleans and have a Mardi Gras every day. Jesus came to save the world, y'all. It's so simple. Jesus came to save the world, not just to give people an evacuation program into the afterlife, but to literally redeem and to restore and heal the world around us. And so that's why he created the church to be a community that makes a difference in the world, to create space for people uh, to learn, to, to become their truest selves in, in him, and to, and to and wade through and to navigate through all the different ways that we are beautifully broken um, by this world. He created the church. So I have a question for you today. This is a place where everybody can participate in the service. I know y'all thinking, oh, he's about to give another offering. No. <laughs> you can give again if you want to. Cash app, dollar sign, Mission House NC. Amen. We appreciate it. It's going in good ground, trust me. But I have a question for all of you. And if we could get some music some kind of way, um, the question I want to ask you is, what are you angry about today? What are you sad about? What are you afraid of? Oh, there you go. I want you to pour out your responses before God. The question again is, what are you angry about today? What are you sad about? What are you afraid of? You know, one of the things that we learn from reading the psalm, this is why I love David, y'all. David, man. David was fallible. David was very much a human being. But David loved God. And one of the things that's very powerful about David is the ways in which he will pour out his soul to God to really speak to. He would say things like, God, my enemies are encamped about me. I am fearful. I'm afraid they're going to take me out. God, do something. That's basically what he'd be saying all the time, right? But enemies around me, you know, it'd be like today. God, all these things are around me. People are dying. People are taking themselves out. 
people are getting poorer and poorer. Uh, the social mobility is crumbling in this culture. God, I'm struggling. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills next week. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why the meaning of my life is. I don't even know why I'm here. I can't connect with everybody. People, I, I feel alone in this world. There's so many things that encamp about us, that surround us, that get into us and really mess with us. They cause us to be sad. It causes us to be angry. And it causes us to be fearful. So while I pray, we got our markers. You don't have to if you don't want to. Because sometimes you got something in confidence. But I do want you to share that with the Lord, whatever that is. But if you feel inclined, please, if, it is, if it's for somebody else, that's fine too. You can stand in proxy with them. Come up to the board. I want you to write, what are you angry about? What are you sad about? What are you afraid of? Pour out your response before God today. And if you feel emboldened, please come up and share on here to give voice to your pain, to give voice uh, to your anger, to give voice to your sadness, to give voice to your fear, to share what's causing anxiety today, to give voice to that thing. You can write it down on the board. You can write it down not only for yourself, you can write it for somebody else. If you know somebody right now struggling in their life, they're struggling in their family, they're struggling in the world around them at work, please write their name down or write down what it is that they're struggling with. feel inclined to do so, please do so. What are you or they angry about today? What are they sad about? What are they afraid of?